Matthew chapter 28, verse number 1. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him, lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy, and did run to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, all hail. And they came and held him by his feet and worshiped him. Then said Jesus unto them, be not afraid, go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee and there shall they see me. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask you, Lord God, that you would teach us now your truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you very much. You may be seated. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is without a doubt the most important event in redemptive history. In the crucifixion of Christ, we see the redemptive plan of God completed. In the re resurrection of Christ, we see that plan applied. The fact is, folks, that without the resurrection, His sacrificial death fails to provide the ground for salvation from sin. You know, the Apostle Paul attested to this fact that the resurrection of Jesus Christ must be a reality. Paul lays that out for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 13 to 19. And of course, the Apostle Paul is giving these instructions in relation to the general resurrection, but he speaks in specifically in relation to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul says in that great text that if Jesus Christ is not raised, then Paul says in verse 14, then our preaching is vain. Our preaching is empty. Our preaching is useless. But then Paul goes on to say and says that if Jesus Christ be not raised, then he says not only is our preaching vain, but he says your faith is empty. Your faith is useless. And Paul further states that if Christ is not raised from the dead, in verse 15, he says, then we are found to be false witnesses of God. You know, people often associate the glory, God's glory with the second coming of Jesus Christ. But folks, listen, without the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, there would be no glorious resurrection. There would be no glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And being that the fact of the resurrection has to do with the glory of Christ, each time in the Old Testament that it speaks about the reigning of Jesus Christ in glory, it presupposes the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Because folks, listen, without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there would be no glory. There would be no rapture. There would be no marriage supper of the Lamb. There would be no second coming. There would be no millennial reign. And there would be no eternal state. Everything in redemptive history rises or falls on the fact of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the day. This is not just a day that we set aside to commemorate the resurrection of our God But it is that. But it is always a lifetime. It should be a lifetime of praise to God for the resurrection. Because without it, there would be nothing. And consider this. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves beyond any shadow of a doubt the deity of Jesus Christ and the guarantee of our resurrection. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20, Now if Jesus Christ, now, but now is Jesus Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. In, ancient, in the ancient economy, the way that a person would prove or would guarantee the coming of further product was something called the first fruits. It's a way of saying, here is a sample of more that's guaranteed. And Paul, borrowing that analogy uh, from ancient, the ancient economy, applies it to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Christ Jesus is the first fruits in His resurrection. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. And the reason, folks, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so vital to our salvation, because if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then death won the victory over Christ. And if anything wins the victory over Christ, he would have been proven not to have been the acceptable sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And if he was not the acceptable sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we would still be in our sins. If Jesus Christ had not been raised from the dead, then his death was useless and God still holds our sins against us. If Jesus Christ had not been raised from the dead, then we were not reconciled to the Father. The penalty of sin was not redeemed. He did not bring about our forgiveness. If all of those things are not true, his death would have been nothing more than the death, heroic as it may have been, but it would have been nothing but the death of a, no, of a noble martyr or that of a pathetic madman or the execution of a fraud. And if Jesus Christ had not been raised from the dead, all men would be damned forever and heaven would be empty except for God and the angels. But, but, God did raise Jesus Christ from the dead. His death did pay the price for our sins. And he, his resurrection proves it. When God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, he demonstrated that the sacrifice that the Son offered was a full sacrifice for what the law demanded. And not only that, church, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves his power over the supreme penalty of of sin, and that is death. The grave could no longer hold him because he conquered death. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 24, it says, Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it is not possible that he should be holden of it. 
Death was powerless, church, to hold Jesus Christ for a couple of reasons. First of all, death was powerless to hold Jesus Christ because of divine power. In John chapter 11, when all, when all the family and friends of Lazarus are gathering around the tomb of Lazarus at his death, Jesus Christ makes this grand proclamation in verse 25. He said to Lazarus' sisters, I am, I am the resurrection and the life. Ego a me in the Greek. And Jesus Christ is borrowing an Old Testament title for God. Remember when Moses was told by God to go into Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses says, whom should I say to the people that sent me? And God says this, tell them that I am has sent you. Tell them that the self-sufficient God, the eternal God, the Lord of glory has sent you. And Jesus borrows that name because he is the second person of the triune God, the eternal son in the place of the Trinity. God of very gods, God in flesh. And Jesus borrows that analogy and he gives, borrows that title. And he looks at Mary, he looks at Martha, the sisters of Lazarus. And he said, I am the self-existent God. I am the eternal God. I exist because of no one else. I exist within myself and I am the resurrection and I am the life because I had divine power over death and because he had divine power over death you and I have divine power over death through him in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 for as much then as the children are not partakers of flesh and blood he uh, he also in himself likewise took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death that is the devil. Folks, listen. Hallelujah. Praise God today when Jesus Christ burst forth out of that grave, Satan's power hasn't been broken in order to bring us to God. And in the resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ robbed Satan of his supreme strategy. Death is a strategic weapon, but God has a weapon that is more powerful, and that is eternal life. And with that, Jesus Christ destroyed death. And the way to eternal life is through the resurrection. And so when Christ went into death, Jesus Christ went through death and he came out on the other side. But not only is death powerless over Jesus Christ because of divine power, but death is powerless over Jesus because of a divine promise. Jesus said in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then, the Jew, then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and thou wilt rear it up in three days. But he spoke of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they what? They believed the scripture and the word which Jesus has said. In Luke chapter 24, verse 26, And said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And if Jesus Christ had not been raised from the dead, then not only would death show to have power over his power, but death would show to have power over his promise. And the power of death is powerless against our Savior because of a divine power and because of a divine promise. Because if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, folks, everything else he says is called into question. So the resurrection was a divine stamp of approval of the atonement he purchased through his dying. In Romans chapter 1 verse 4, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
Folks, we, God gave us an immediate, God gave us a dramatic, God gave us tangible proof of the efficacy of Christ's atoning death. Jesus Christ was a dying substitute for sinners. He died in my place and he raised again the third day so that I could be justified before God. Hallelujah, praise his name. And the Father, the Lord God Almighty, has a commentary on the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. And in that commentary, he gives us six miracles that took place during the crucifixion and the resurrection. These are miracles that only God could do in order to validate the resurrection of Jesus Christ and to judge the world. And I want us to notice this morning these six miracles, these, this commentary that God has on the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. And so here's what I want you to do this morning. I'm going to take you back in time to 30, between 32 and 33 AD, and we're going to go back in time to 9 a.m. Friday morning. And what took place at 9 a.m. Friday morning. And we're going to work our way through all the whole weekend until we get to the resurrection of Jesus Christ on on Sunday. And we're going to notice as we start at 9 a.m. on Friday, these six miracles that God did in order to validate His Son. Number one, the first miracle that God did, you see it on your bulletin, on the back on your outline, the first miracle God did was supernatural darkness. Supernatural darkness darkness as the sinless son of God took upon himself the sins of all the people who would ever believe the first miracle that took place in God's commentary on his crucifixion was supernatural darkness you know the Bible has a lot to say to us about the light in relation to Jesus Christ for example when Jesus Christ was born the sky around Bethlehem was filled with supernatural light it tells us there in Luke chapter 2 and verse 9 it shows says that the glory of the Lord shone round about them the apostle John spoke as, of Christ as the light of men and the true light in John chapter 1 and verse 4 in him was life and the life was the light of men and in first and in John chapter 1 verse 9 that was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Jesus Christ spoke of himself as the light of the world in John chapter 8, verse 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am, ego me again, I am the self-existent one. I am the eternal one. I am the eternal God who is the light of the world. However, when Jesus Christ was crucified, there was no glorious light. There was only darkness. Look down in Matthew chapter 27, which is where we're going to begin. Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse 45. What I read to you as our text is where we're going to end, but where we're going to begin at 9 a.m. on Friday is in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 45. The Bible says this, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. Now we need to understand in reference to the hours in this text, we need, under, we need to remember the Jewish clock. The Jews did not have 24-hour days as we have. They had 12-hour days. Their day started at 6 a.m. and went to 6 p.m. Roman time is just like ours, midnight to midnight. And when the Scripture says that it was about the sixth hour, that means that it would have been about noon that darkness went on the earth. Jesus Christ was put on the cross on the, at 9 a.m., at 12 noon, the Bible says that darkness came upon the earth. Christ had been on the cross 
for three hours when the earth went dark. Because according to Mark's gospel, as I said, Christ was put on the, on the cross the third hour, Mark 15, 25. And then as we approach noon, the text says that we have darkness all over the land. Now just how extensive was that darkness? Well, the text does not give us the information on how extensive that darkness was. The word land there in your text is the Greek word gay, and it literally could be translated earth. It's a form of the word earth, but it could also mean a portion of a, or of a region. The fact is that God is able to make the darkness local or, local or global, isn't he? The one who spoke and the one who removed the darkness and brought forth light in Genesis chapter 1 certainly has the power to speak and remove the light and bring global darkness again. During Israel's time in Egypt, God calls a great darkness to cover the land in Exodus chapter 10, verses 4 through 5. And then 40 years later, he was able to make the sun stand still, probably by temporarily suspending the rotation of the earth in Joshua chapter 10. You know, there's also some interesting extra biblical accounts of the darkness at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The early church father Origen recorded a statement by a Roman historian who mentioned that darkness. Another church father, Tertullian, wrote to, this, to this, some pagan acquaintances of his about an unusual darkness on that day. There was also reports that Pilate, reports from Pilate to the emperor Tiberius, who would have been in Rome at the time, that gives the indication that the emperor, way over in Rome, knew about the darkness. In fact, had so much information about that darkness that he knew it lasted from 12 noon to 3 p.m. So whether the darkness was localized or whether it was global, we cannot be 100% sure. But it seems very clear that the darkness that God brought on the land during the crucifixion of Christ was widespread. We are faced, folks, with the idea of what brought that darkness. How did it happen? Well, again, we can't be 100% certain of this. And the answer that we usually like to give is, well, it was brought about by God. That answer satisfies believers, but it doesn't seem to satisfy some people. Some say it was a thunderstorm. But that, if that were the case, that would have been a thunderstorm of about three hours. Some say that it was a, the black Sirocco desert storm. But those type of storms that happen in the Middle East usually don't bring such darkness. Probably the most popular view, even among evangelicals, is that it was an eclipse. And the idea that we get that is from what Luke's gospel says. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 45, he says, And the sun was darkened. And the word darkened is the word eclipto, which from where we get our English word eclipse. And so they say that the darkness happened because God caused the moon to eclipse the sun. However, the normal astronomical eclipse would have been impossible during that time of the year because during that time of the year was a full moon and normally speaking during that time, the moon, and the, the moon and the sun are too far apart from each other to eclipse. So that probably didn't take place. However, these are not normal times and these are not normal events. It could, if God could cause the rotation of the earth to stop in the book of Joshua and the one who controls it all could certainly have caused the sun and the moon to eclipse at a time when it normally does not happen. So what is the answer? How did this darkness happen? A miracle, a special act of God. That's where we started. That's where we end up. This is a miracle of God. 
You know, it was long believed. In fact, you can go back to the, the, the Babylonian Talmud. It was long believed that the rabbis believed that darkness was a judgment of God for, for an unusual, heinous sin. Now, if that is the case, if that is the purpose, then this is a gigantic object lesson regarding the greatest sin that was ever committed by fallen mankind. And I believe that based on the truth of Scripture, that this darkness was indeed judgment. In speaking of the Assyrians being used by God to punish Israel, in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 30, God talks about beholding, bringing darkness and sorrow. And in describing the day of the Lord, the judgment of God, God says this, Isaiah says this in Isaiah chapter 13, beginning in verse 10 through 11, I'm not going to read it all, but in that passage he talks about the sun shall be darkened. And in speaking about the day of the Lord, the prophet Joel says in Joel chapter 2 and verse 2 that that the clouds came and brought a thick darkness. And the prophet Amos rhetorically stated in Amos chapter 5 and verse 20, shall not the day of the Lord be what? Darkness and not light. And the prophet Zephaniah says in Zephaniah chapter 1, beginning in verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastened greatly. Even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of what? Darkness has to do with the judgment of God. Even in the New Testament, Peter proclaimed this about evil spirits in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. For if God spared not the angels of sin, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of what? darkness. Jude echoes the same sentiment as well in Jude verse 6. And the angels which kept not their first estate, who left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness. Christ himself spoke frequently about divine judgment in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 12. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into utter darkness. And in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 13, then said the king to the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into uttermost what? Darkness. And in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 30, and cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer? Darkness is used to describe the state of unbelievers now. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him, we walk in darkness. In John chapter 3, verse 19, and this is the commandment that light is coming to the world and men loved darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. And the cross of Jesus Christ was a place of immense divine judgment as the sins of all who will ever believe were poured out on Jesus Christ. And it is therefore appropriate that supernatural darkness expresses God's commentary as the sin of all who would ever believe was placed on the eternal Son of God. And so we see God's commentary on the crucifixion of Christ was spiritual darkness, judgment. Because in that judgment, in that cross, 
the world was committing the most heinous, the most wicked act ever known as they crucified the Lord of glory. But God had a better view in mind because in that crucifixion was not the death of a martyr, was not the death of a fraud, was not the death of, of a madman. But in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, He became my substitute. He took upon Himself every single sin that I would, am, and ever would commit. He placed it on Himself, propitiated my sin, satisfied the divine wrath of God, and now I'm free. And supernatural darkness was God's commentary on the crucifixion of Christ. Number two, not only divine supernatural darkness, but we have sovereign departure. Supernatural darkness, number two, sovereign departure. We see here what is probably for Christ the worst part of the events of that day. And that is the recognition that God has left him. Look at our text in verse 46. And about the ninth hour, that would be what? That would be 3 p.m. That would be 3 p.m. And this is an amazing, folks, this is an amazing yet sad event where God is separated from God. Look at verse 46. Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus Christ, of course, is quoting that famous passage from Psalm 22, verse 1. And verse 43 of our text tells us that all the people standing around the cross had been taunting Christ while he was on the cross. Verse 47 says this, some of them that stood there when they heard that said, this man calleth for Elias or Elijah. Remember, they had been taunting Christ saying, if he really be, if he really is who he said he was, if he is really the Christ, if he is really the God that he said he is, then let him bring himself down and prove it to us. And then when Jesus Christ is crying out to the Father, why have you forsaken me? The taunting crowd says, oh, he's calling for Elijah. This was not conjecture. They were not assuming of who Jesus was talking to. This was part of an extension of the cruel, cynical mockery that this crowd had been pouring on Christ. And in this strange miracle, Christ is crying out in agony because of the separation that He is now experiencing from the Heavenly Father for the first time in all of eternity. In fact, folks, if you look in the Gospels, this is the one and only time that Jesus Christ does not address God as Father. This is the only time that he addresses God as God and not Father. Because at this moment, the intimacy was gone. The relationship was gone. Jesus didn't cease to be God, but the relationship was gone. Why? Because of your sin and my sin. Because Christ had taken on himself sin. The Father turned his back on the Son. The mystery of this is so great that it is said that Martin Luther went into seclusion to try to figure it out and he came out just as confused as he went in. But the fact remains that somehow the God-man, God incarnate, was separated from the Father for, for a short time. As the full fury of the wrath of God was poured out on Christ, the sinless one. In an act of great grace, He became sin for everyone that would ever believe on Him alone. John MacArthur said this, God turned His back when Jesus was on the cross because He could not look upon sin. 
even or perhaps especially in His own Son. Just as Jesus loudly lamented, God, the Father, You have indeed forsaken Me. Folks, listen. Jesus Christ did not die as a righteous martyr. Jesus Christ did not die as an heroic gesture. Christ died... Christ was forsaken of the Father as a substitutionary sacrifice for sin. Therefore, the righteous Father had to judge Him fully according to that sin. Just imagine, folk, every sin of every person that would ever believe was poured out on one Lamb of God, and God poured out His entire fury on that one Lamb. Imagine, you know how you act when you get offended? You know how you and I in our flesh have feelings of retribution when we get offended? Just imagine the feelings of retribution when holiness is offended. When holiness is offended, it demands holy retribution. And that was what was poured out on Christ. And in this sovereign departure, this second commentary on the crucifixion, as Jesus Christ took on the full fury of the sins of His people, the Father forsook His Son because according to Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5, He took on our sin. According to Romans chapter 4 and verse 25, He was delivered for our transgressions. And according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, He became sin on our behalf. And according to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, He became a curse for us. And according to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10, He became the propitiation for our sins. I love that word propitiation, don't you? That's a tongue twister, but I love that word propitiation because in that great word propitiation, it tells us that Jesus Christ absorbed and He satisfied the full wrath of God. And get this, church, in the propitiation of Jesus Christ, it was for His people a complete removal of God's wrath. If you're a Christian in this auditorium tonight, this morning, you stand here absolutely right before God because in the propitiation of the cross of Jesus Christ, as He took upon the full fury of God's wrath, He completely wiped away from you every sin that you ever committed. Hallelujah. Christ not only bear, bore man's sin, but He actually became sin on our behalf. In order that those who would cry out to Him in faith alone, they could be saved from the penalty of their sin. Now as I said, in this separation, Christ never ceased to be, ceased to be God. But in that separation, the intimacy between He and the Father was gone. And at the cross, the separation that Christ experienced, listen, was immeasurably more profound and more humbling than the incarnation during the first 33 years of His earthly life. And let me tell you, that I'll go so far as to say this, church, that in the separation from God from God, that was far more of a profound agony than being nailed to the cross. Verse 49 of our text, the rest said, let be, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. You know, it seems, what, this is just, the verse is just amazing to me. Because it seems that the midday darkness didn't seem to bother them at all. Didn't seem to bother them at all. They were so bent on getting rid of Christ. They were so bent in scorning him that the phenomenon did not even seem to phase them. And while they were 
focused on making the death of Christ more painful and more humiliating. They had no comprehension of the amazing alienation that the Father had from the Son. Because of your sin and mine. For the first time in eternity, the only time, the Father and the Son were out of fellowship with one another. Because Jesus Christ took on my sin. And so we see supernatural darkness. We see sovereign departure. Number three, we see a, self, a self-giving death. A self-giving death. The Son's willful giving of His own life was the third great commentary of God on the cross and the resurrection. Look at verse 50. Jesus, when He had cried again, cried again with a loud voice, even with all of the physical, the mental, and the emotional torture that Christ had been experiencing, He had enough strength to cry out these in three important words. Now Matthew doesn't record for us what those words are, but John does. And I love these three words. John chapter 19, verse 30. Here were the three words that Jesus Christ cried out. It is finished. And then this amazing third miracle. Christ cries out the words that indicate that the work of His Father, the work that the Father has sent Him to accomplish was complete. Then after proclaiming Satan's defeat, Again in John chapter 19, verse 30, he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. He bowed his head and just let his spirit go. Folks, listen, Christ's life was not taken from him, was it? He gave it. He surrendered it. In John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus Christ said those very words, No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down. And I have the power to take it again. On the cross, The Father judged the sins that the Son took on Himself and the Son who divinely controls living and dying willingly surrendered His life as a penalty for that sin. And when Jesus Christ hung there on the cross and He said, it's completed. It's completed. It's done. Satan has been defeated. I have made the sacrifice for the sins of Of my people. Number four. Sanctuary desecration was the fourth miracle. We see supernatural darkness. We see sovereign departure. We see self-giving death. And number four, we see sanctuary desecration. Look at verse 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to the bottom. And of course, because of the mention of the veil here, it does not refer to the temple as a whole, but it refers to a particular part. It refers to that part of the Holy of Holies, the place where God dwelt, the place where the high priest could only go one time a year. The veil was that huge curtain that was blue in color, according to Josephus, that separated the place of the presence of God from the rest of the temple. And again, the high priest alone was allowed to go there to make atonement for the sins of the nation. And when Christ 
gave up His Spirit. Folks, I love this. When Christ gave up His Spirit, the once for all sacrifice was completed and we no longer needed that veil because in the sacrifice of Christ, there was no longer a time where you and I could not come before the presence of Almighty God individually. We are our own priests before God. We have total access to the Father and now God proves it by tearing the veil from the top to the bottom. No more high priest is needed. The Levitical system is gone. The sacrificial system is gone. I have finished the work. The veil is torn. Come on in. John MacArthur said it was, an, it was on effect God saying, in the death of my son Jesus Christ, there is total access in my holy presence. He has paid the full price for everyone who trusts in him. And now I open my holy presence to all who will come in his name. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 14, let us therefore come what? Boldly to the throne of God. Listen, that didn't happen before Calvary. But the writer of Hebrews invites us, he says, come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace in the help of need. And this dramatic miracle took place, interestingly enough, in a place where worshipers and pilgrims would have been worshiping. And even though the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, the sacrificial system was destroyed right there because Jesus said, I took care of it. It is finished. It is done. And the divine significance of the high priest will never die because the Bible says of Jesus Christ in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25, wherefore he is able to save them all to the uttermost that come unto him by God, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Christ sacrificed toward the veil, folks. It's a sanctuary desecration. It tore the veil. And it gives you and I the ability to come into the presence of God because of Christ. And this fourth miracle, this fourth commentary on the crucifixion says the work is done. The veil doesn't need to be there. I'm no longer separated from my people. Come into my presence. Have intimate holy communion with me you need no one else but come through christ come through christ number five and this one i kind of fall over a little bit i i kind of thought of what to call it but i figured i'd call it something that everybody would remember seismic disruption seismic disruption i thought about soil disturbance but that sounded kind of stupid so i went with seismic disruption look at the latter part of verse 51 and the father Further, cements his commentary on the crucifixion and resurrection by Christ. It says, and the earth did shake and the rocks were torn. You know, the scriptures are filled with the significance of this event. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 11, and he said, go forth and stand before the mount of the Lord and behold, the Lord passed by and a great strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces and rocks before God. When God wants to get people's attention, what does he do? He uses an earthquake and he shakes things up. He shakes things up. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 18, and, and Mount Sinai altogether, uh, was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended it upon it in fire and the smoke thereof ascended as a smoke of a furnace and the whole mount quaked greatly. 
And there was an earthquake when the Lord was angry in 2 Samuel chapter 22 and verse 8. And the earth shook and trembled. And Isaiah spoke of God punishing his people in Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 6. Thou shalt be visited upon the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and a great noise. The book of Revelation tells us of God's judgment in Revelation chapter 6 verse 13. And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind, and the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of its place. And at the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ earned the right to take the title deed from the earth, from the hands of the Father. And in Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 9, we see that in heaven, we see the glorious song of the heavenly throng where it says, Thou art worthy. Thou art worthy. Because you finished the work that your Father sent you to accomplish. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us or bought us back to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and has made us unto our God kings and what? Priests. There's that torn veil again. Priests. And he shall reign on the earth. When God shook the earth, it was a foretaste of the judgment that would come on the day of judgment. And because Jesus Christ, folks, finished the, finished the work, it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And verse 11 says that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow. Jesus Christ did it, church. He did it. He died. He surrendered His own life so that you and I could live. But there's a sixth miraculous display. There's a supernatural darkness. There was a sovereign departure. There was a self-giving death. There was a sanctuary desecration. There was a seismic disruption. And number six, there was a spectacular display. There was a spectacular display. Go over to chapter 28. Folks, this is what it's all about. This is what it's all about. In the cross, God displayed His wrath and disapproval of sin. But in the resurrection... God displays the power of the Godhead and His approval of Christ's sacrifice. Look what it says in verse 2 of Matthew 28. And behold, there was a great what? Earthquake. Here we go again. There was a, when God wants to shake things up, when He wants to get people's attention, He starts moving those seismic rocks. Here we got another earthquake. And in that resurrection... We have acceptance of God with the sacrifice of Jesus. And the dis spectacular display is so vital that, be that because without it, folks, there would be no salvation. Jesus Christ had to rise. That's why, again, giving you these verses again, that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, that if Christ be not raised, our faith is vain and, and you are yet in your sins. 
And Paul says in Romans chapter 4 and verse 25 that he, Jesus, was delivered for our offenses and was raised for our what? What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus Christ was raised for our justification? Here's what it means, church. And if we don't love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, then for any other reason, it ought to be because of this day 2,000 years ago. That in His resurrection, He was raised for our justification. Let me unbutton my coat before I, before I hurt myself. He was raised for our justification, meaning that God treated Christ as if He lived my life, and God treats me as if I live Christ's life. That He clothes me with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He looks at me, sinful and as I am, He looks at me and says, Michael Huffman, because of Jesus Christ, you are righteous. And not only does He declare me righteous, but He clothes me with the righteousness of Jesus Christ that I can actually go into that Holy of Holies and I can stand before Him all because Christ went in and dropped, kicked the devil in the teeth and won the victory over death and was raised for our justification. Hallelujah. Glory to his name, right? Let me tell you one thing right now. You and I have a lot to praise God for, don't we? When the crucifixion of Christ, we have Christ completing his part of redemption, being raised so that I can be righteous. And we, because of the resurrection of Christ, he, we who were dead in our trespasses and sins. We who were dead in our trespasses and sins and have placed our faith and trust in Him are in fact declared righteous. In Romans chapter 6, verse 4, Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 10, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Matthew chapter 28 in our text, verse 10, Jesus said unto them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there they shall see me. I can think of no better news for those disciples that could hear they could, they could hear it that day. They just lost their master. They just lost their Messiah. They didn't know what to do. And now Jesus says to the ladies, I think it's incredible that Jesus appeared to women first. I think that's absolutely wonderful that Jesus appeared to women first because what were the punk disciples doing? They were hiding. It was the women that had faith enough to go to the temple of Christ, go to the tomb of Christ. And Jesus appeared to these women and says, don't be afraid. Go tell those scaredy cats they need to go to Galilee. And when they go to Galilee, they'll see me there. Look at what he says. Notice what he says in verse 6. He is not here. He's not here. He's not here. You go to the grave of Buddha, you find who? You go to the grave of Muhammad, you find who? The day will come when you'll go to my grave and you'll find my shell. But I'll be with the one who was raised for my justification, who was bruised for my iniquity, who took on the chastisement of my peace because by his stripes, I'm healed.
He's not here. He's risen, as he said. You want proof? Come here. This is where they laid him. He's gone. We celebrate the resurrection of Christ because in a glorious event, in this glorious event, Christ defeated death for us. He took upon himself the eternal wrath of God. And God, being satisfied with the payment the Son made, raised him at this spectacular display to show his power over sin, Satan, and death. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an event that God's people should give glory to God every day, not just today. You and I should live not just today, not just the day that's set aside to commemorate the resurrection of Christ, but we should live every day in the light of the resurrection of Christ. We should live every day giving glory to Almighty God for the resurrection of Christ. And we need to always live in the glorious realities that Christ lives forever. And He is coming to take His bride away. But the great thing about the resurrection is that not only does it bring glory to God, but it also brings benefit to God's people. And as God's people, we need to be careful that we don't add anything to the great event, even in the smallest way to take away from that glory. At the cross, God's wrath was displayed. At the resurrection, God's power was delivered. What a commentary that God has on the cross and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. A supernatural darkness, a sovereign departure, a sacrificial death, a sanctuary desecration, a seismic disruption, and a spectacular display. No wonder the songwriter said, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we could never in a million lifetimes ever praise you enough. For the cross, for the death of Christ, we can never praise you enough for his resurrection. Father, because he lives, we too shall live. Father, we can never thank you enough. All of our words of thanksgiving, Father, seem to be so out of touch of the reality of the praise that you, that you deserve. Father, we thank you and praise you. Father, that through Jesus Christ alone, we have access to the Father. Lord, we don't have the understanding of the ability to, to be able to fully understand everything that Christ went through that day. But Father, we praise you that he did it for us. He willingly laid down his life so that we could live that if we would place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, 
have eternal life. Because He raised from the dead. Accepted the sacrifice. Thank you, Father. Thank you for what you've done in Christ for us. We are unworthy. We do not deserve it. We thank you, Father. How thankful are you this morning? Do we live each day in the reality of the resurrection of Christ? Or do we just live in it in the reality of the day for a couple hours? Folks, we need to be very thankful for the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. I wanted to give you just a moment this morning. Maybe you want to come and maybe you want to thank God for what He's done for you. Then I want to extend in just a moment for you to be able to come to this altar and pray. Tell God whatever's on your heart. Whatever thanks that you want to give to God. Here's your opportunity to come and kneel. There's nothing magical here. It's just you being able to be given an opportunity to pray and ask God and pray to God. Thank you for what you've done. Maybe you would say this morning, you would say, Pastor, I'm not, I've never been born again. I've never received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. that I'd ask you this morning as all these folks are in an attitude of prayer to come and we can take the word of God and show you how you can be born again. Jesus said in John 3 that except a man is born from above, he will never see the kingdom of heaven. We don't see heaven because we're good people. We don't see heaven because we're members of a church. We don't see heaven because of any other reason except in Jesus Christ alone. So maybe you would say this morning, I've never truly been born again. I may be a member of a church, but I've never truly been born again. You come. We can take you and show you from God's word. We just praise you, Father, today that you love us, that you gave yourself for us, and that unbelievable sacrifice on the cross of Christ. And we are forever thankful for what you've done for us. And Father, as I said, our, our praise seems to fall woefully short of what you deserve. Because we amongst all people are, are unworthy of such grace. Father, we thank you for this time that we've had to reflect. Father, may we go in this place living in the reality of your resurrection. We 
thank you and praise you. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to Divine Truth Podcast. We pray that the Word of God has been a spiritual blessing to your soul. For more information about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebcmineral.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Our Lord's Day services are 10 and 11 a.m. as well as 6.30 p.m. We also have a Wednesday service at 6.30 p.m. We here at Emmanuel Baptist Church pray that the message of God's divine truth would always go from the cross, through the church, to the world, until Christ come. God bless you.